Hello and welcome to the Sifted Podcast. I'm Amy, Sifted's editor. And I'm Eleanor, Sifted's deputy editor. And at Sifted, for those of you who are new to this show, we report on Europe's tech and startup sector. And every week on this podcast, we highlight the juiciest news stories of the week and we speak to our reporters to get a bit more intel on the stories that they have been working on. So this week, we're going to be looking at some of the biggest news in the space, how Germany is trying to supercharge its startup ecosystem, Europe's biggest quantum round ever. And we're going to be hearing about a new service for gig workers, which promises to give them better transparency on pay. And then finally, we're going into the weird and perhaps wonderful, depending on your interests, world of crypto clubs. Think Soho House, but for Bitcoin bros. Stay tuned for that. So we actually have our a new club of our own, Amy, the Sifted Office. Can you tell me what's going on? So very exciting. This week we moved into our brand spanking new office. Like any new place, it's lacking some key things for now, like plants and things on the walls. But those things are coming soon and everyone is very excited to be in new Sifted HQ. Amazing. I guess the other thing that we should mention is that we are still doing our listener survey about the podcast. I don't even know what episode that we're on, but we've done quite a few together through thick and through thin in good podcast studio and bad in strange conference closet room and other weird places. Do you remember that, Amy? I do. I remember that very, very well. It's been <laughs> it's been a beautiful journey. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we'd love if everyone could take it. The link is in the description. So on to the first story we're looking at today, we've got some policy from our reporter Zosha Wonat about the German government's new pledge to unlock a 30 billion euro financial boost to startups. It's saying it wants to make the country a, I quote, founding republic. How long are startups going to have to wait to get hold of this 30 billion euros, Elena? Yeah, so Germany has pledged to mobilise this 30 billion of additional funding by 2030. And this is a plan that's been approved by the federal cabinet on Wednesday. They say that they're going to achieve this by helping facilitate investment by insurance companies and pension funds into VC funds. And this is actually a big debate in European tech and has been for a while. So a lot of people in European tech talk about the fact that if the ecosystem is really going to attract a lot more capital, we're going to have to mobilize these huge institutional investors in Europe, like pension funds and stuff like that, to put money into tech. However, those investors have been until now very conservative. And so it's really difficult and they haven't allocated as much money as they have to other asset classes. The State of European Tech Report, done by Atomico, which I used to work on, just putting that little like disclaimer out there, always has a really good analysis of investment by pension funds and stuff into VC funds. And it's interesting if you look at it, European pension funds have more than $3 trillion in assets under management, or AUM. And then in 2020, they invested about $700 million into tech here, which is equivalent to 0.018% of their total assets under management, which is just an insanely low amount, considering that many of the tech companies in Europe are going to be economic leaders of the future, right? They're going to be very important companies in our economy. 
And if you increase the allocation of that total assets to just 1% of their total AUM, that would equate to an increase of 40 billion a year. So obviously, this is something that the German government understands very well. There are a lot of conservative but big institutional investors in Germany. It's a huge economy, right? And so I think the government is hoping that they can help push those investors more towards investing in VC. But obviously, getting more money and more money from different kinds of investors into startups is not the only struggle the German startup scene has, right? How is this 32-page document pledging to help some of those other challenges? Yeah, totally. So they've talked about a couple of other areas. For example, reforming taxation on employee stock options so that employees don't have to pay as much tax on their stock options. And these stock options are obviously a kind of lever that lots of startups use to entice people to work for them, perhaps for lower salaries than they'd get at bigger, more established companies in the hope that they will get nice returns on those stock options in the future. But also from a policymaking standpoint, you want to incentivize companies to give stock options out and for people to want to have stock options, because if they make money through that, then they will become potentially the angel investors of the future that are supporting the next generation of startups, or they'll you know go and work for another startup and be part of the founding team or whatever. So it it's very much part of that, how can we make the flywheel spin faster and make the ecosystem more mature kind of strategy. The other things that they talked about in the document are also facilitating spinouts. Again, you know, helping those companies that come out of an academic slash research background and then also working on diversity, which we all know sucks. Yeah, it was interesting. They said that they will put aside pots of money for climate tech and deep tech and also female founders and social entrepreneurs. It would be great to see that happen. We have seen pledges like this before that haven't materialized just yet. Totally. I think that's the really big point. There's very little detail on how this stuff is actually going to be implemented. And of course, a lot of it requires the cooperation of the private sector as well. So yes, we will see what happens. Sounds good. Hopefully it will happen. We're not sure when. Sit tight, folks. So on to our second news story. This was a very, very cool one. Finnish quantum computing hardware provider IQM landed a 128 million euro funding round, which was Europe's largest quantum funding round ever. And there's been some stuff going on in European quantum. So what's going on with IQM, Amy? So IQM are part of a wave of companies that are developing quantum computers to help with the climate crisis. And what makes this one especially interesting is that it's actually making the hardware, which is not something that a lot of startups do. It means it's up against enormous US companies like IBM and Google, and it plans to sell its computers to research labs, data centers and companies eventually. And so how could this be used to help climate change, Amy? Okay, so the general sort of idea with quantum computers is that they can tackle much bigger, more complicated problems than normal computers because they can do these things a lot, lot faster. And a big problem that exists in the climate area is how to develop more efficient batteries. So these quantum computers can more accurately simulate the way that chemical processes work at an atomic level. And that precision can help develop these more efficient batteries. Other cool things they could do, they could simulate the processes within a solar power cell to work out how to increase the percentage of the light that comes into them that gets turned into electric energy. 
This sounds like pretty futuristic sci-fi stuff, Amy. Is it going to happen in our lifetimes? Let us say that quantum computing is still in its early stages, but the consulting firm McKinsey are quite excited about the potential. They think that quantum computing could help develop tech with the potential to get rid of 7 gigatons of CO2 a year by 2035, which isn't so, so long away. And you lucky creatures, that is not the only story we had this week about the future of computing. We also shared the news that iPronics, which is a small startup spun out of the Polytechnic University of Valencia in Spain, has raised 3.7 million euros. And it's working on technology that it says will massively democratise the use of photonics. So Eleanor, for the listeners out there who aren't photonics fans, what is photonics. I love that. I love the idea of photonics stance and I would like to meet them. But photonics is basically a way of wiring microprocessors without using silicon. So most of the semiconductors that we have in our computers are made out of silicon right now. But obviously with those chips getting smaller and then there's like increased demands on computing power, we need better chips for the future. And so photonics is basically a way of using light to transfer and store information. That way we can make chips that are faster and can hold more information than traditional chips. Cool. And what are these super speedy chips useful for? So one example from the piece that our reporter Tim Smith mentioned is this company called Mobileye, which is a self-driving car startup based in Israel. And obviously self-driving technology needs tons and tons of information and it needs to be processed extremely quickly. Like if you're driving through the city, there are all these things that the car is processing, where people are walking next to the car, what's happening with the traffic lights, all of that stuff. And so the computer needs to do lots of complicated calculations in real time. And Mobileye was able to use photonics because it was acquired by Intel, which has these capabilities, um, so it could get access to this infrastructure. And Mobileye can compete with companies like Tesla by using these these chips. And usually it would be really hard for a company like this to use photonics or develop photonics themselves because it's really complicated and expensive. But I guess Ipronics is this startup that we wrote about this week. It's kind of pitches that it can help these smaller businesses that aren't, you know, Tesla or owned by Intel get access to this kind of super cool technology. Yeah, completely. So they want to basically white label this technology. So if you are any company that's building, uh, you know, automated vehicle or anything else that could benefit from this increased computing power, you can use their technology in your device, hardware, whatever you're building. Um, I think the other thing that's interesting to mention here is that this isn't like the first cool chip technology startup in Europe. The UK is very famous for having Graphcore here. They're a unicorn and they're making basically AI chips to do very, very similar things. So chips that can do very fast and complicated computations even better. So I don't know, maybe this is the next Graphcore. Watch this space. And for our first interview of the day, we're joined by Freya Pratty and Miriam Partington, who had a story out this week about a new service for gig economy workers, which promises to give them better pay transparency across all the different apps they work for. So maybe Freya, if you just set the scene a little bit, if I'm a driver for or a rider for Deliveroo or Uber Eats or Glovo or one of these platforms, why why is kind of pay transparency an issue? Why is pay complicated 
So the algorithms these apps use to decide how much a rider will be paid are notoriously untransparent. So a rider will be able to see how much they've earned for an individual ride, but it's hard to see how that's calculated or how that plays out across the week. And the fee will change based on time or area. So you can see an individual fee, but it's hard to tell why that fee's been given to you. And the effect of that is that as a rider, you don't really know how much you'll earn when you get back from the end of a shift. And that can leave you uncertain in terms of planning ahead with your finances. Okay, so you might have been delivering in a really popular area of the city or you might have been delivering at a time when there weren't many other riders and that would mean you got paid more or less, for example. Yeah, and it's also calculated on if yeah if demand's really, really high and there's not enough riders out on the streets, the fee's going to be higher. If you're in an area where there's not enough riders, the fee will be slightly higher. So it's all calculated based on density and how many orders are coming in. And how so how does this new app, which is called Rodeo, how does that kind of help the riders take best advantage of the way that the pay is calculated? So the app helps them track their earnings across the day. It'll show, it'll aggregate all their orders across multiple apps because most riders uh, in big cities will be working across more than one app at the same time. So it'll show their pay then per hour and it'll show them which times are best to work and which areas are best to work in. And it'll also show data for the whole workforce so it can tell people Uber's pay in general has gone down this much this year or delivery is great on Fridays. So it's it's to the individual rider but it's also aggregated across the entire workforce. Cool. And has it has it kind of got some big picture data it's already collected? So there was an algorithm change on Uber Eats in April and a lot of riders were saying that this had led to a pay decrease for them. But if you're an individual rider, you can see how your earnings have changed, but that's kind of anecdotal evidence at that point. So there was a lot of talk on Reddit channels and things like that, people saying our pay has gone down, but it was all individual stories. But Rodeo, the app has been able to prove that there has been a 7% cut for drivers across this year since since the, um, the algorithm change in April. And that's something riders could never have done before because they didn't have this aggregated data across the whole workforce. So Miriam, you spoke to a bunch of the riders, didn't you? What do they make of the app? Well, I think kind of like beyond being able to see actually how much you've earned in a week and how you've actually earned that. I think one of the useful things riders find about it is that by knowing how much they've earned over time and whether those pay rates have changed, actually having the data, they can like go to the companies and be like, hey, so, you know, six months ago, we were earning £5 per order. And now we're earning £4.80 per order. Why is that? And so for a lot of them, they they feel like it increases their collective bargaining power, you know, actually being able to go back to a company with numbers, they can build a lot better case, right, than just saying like, oh, you're not paying me as much as before. So I think that's one thing. The other thing is just the kind of community side of the app, because if you can imagine that, you know, whether you're a rider cycling or you're a driver, like in a van, you don't really get to talk to people very much day to day. And you probably don't really have colleagues either. So this app kind of connects people to each other so they can talk about workplace problems or they can share tips about the good and the bad restaurants to work for in specific areas. So the community aspect, I think, is also quite important for for them. But Freya, some riders that you spoke to don't think radio is so great. 
Yeah, one rider I spoke to was really critical. He said it's essentially enabling every rider to become a more individualistic worker. So they will have the knowledge of which restaurants and which areas to work in. And then that will mean that they can just compete more against each other. And in his eyes, that was opening up the riders as well as the companies to a free market force that he thought the industry doesn't need any more of. And he said that the data around the general pay changes across the workforce over time is really useful, but that that should be in the hands of collectors of riders or unions rather than an app, because they they will eventually try to monetize the app in some way. They, They intend to advertise financial services to the riders. So he was saying... The data is really useful, but it shouldn't be in the hands of someone trying to monetize the workforce. And he said the only thing that can push back against the algorithms is regulation from governments and that really collective bargaining power hasn't shown that it can do much so far, even if there is data. And what we need is government regulation. Interesting. And for both of you, the riders that you spoke to, do they like working for these apps? Like, you know, are they net? quite a positive way to work or are they working for these companies because they don't have that many other options? Yeah, the rider I spoke to seems to really like it. He's done it for four years. He, I think there's also, I think we tend to think of this as unskilled work and he was saying, no, there's a skill. You get better over time because you know your city inside and out. You know the best restaurants, you know where to go to. So I think he seemed to enjoy it and like take pride in getting better and better at it. So I think it's also how we how non-riders think about the workforce can be a bit damaging sometimes in that way. Yeah, I think we often think of riders and delivery drivers as being like a homogenous group, right? Everybody thinks the same about this low-skilled job. But, you know, the, the person that I spoke to who drives a van, I think, and does deliveries for several companies, he was saying that he gets paid a reasonable amount for what he considers to be a low-skilled job, and it's incredibly flexible work. So those two things put together, he said he's pretty happy with his lot and he's been doing this for years too. Thank you very much Freya and Miriam. Hopefully this app does help the riders get a slightly better deal than they've been getting, especially for those who do actually really enjoy this work anyway. And stay tuned because we are actually sending one of our reporters out on a ride with one of these careers very soon. So we'll be hearing from them what it's like in person. And for our final story today, the one you've all been waiting for, we are talking to Aina Kelly and Georgina Ustek, who are going to tell us all about the Crypto Club, the exclusive members club in London for crypto enthusiasts that they went to last week. We'll let them take it away. So, Aina, we wrote a story. Well, you did most of the actual reporting. I just kind of added jokes into the copy. It's on this new thing called the Crypto Club. Can you tell us a little bit about what that is? Yes. So it's very like a private members club where you buy membership to join this exclusive club where you meet up and chat about crypto. And it's for crypto enthusiasts. It's for people who are curious about crypto. You pay a one-off lifetime fee which is quite unusual for private member clubs usually you end up paying you know renewing your membership every year but this is a lifetime thing which is quite cost effective actually if you're into crypto 
And yeah, we went along to one here in London, in Soho. Can you tell us a little bit about like what that was like? And first of all, maybe for context for people who aren't, aren't based in the UK, like what is Blacks in Soho like? Yeah, super trendy club in Soho. It's been around since the 1700s. And I think it has a super clientele. I mean, I've read rumored members include Benedict Cumberbatch, these kind of individuals. So yeah, I went along and was very curious to see what it would be like. I suppose my my expectation was that it would be a lot of crypto bros, a lot of finance guys. And there definitely were a few of these, but actually I was quite surprised to see, oh, it was quite a broad bunch of people really, quite a diverse crowd, people who who love crypto, people who don't know the first thing about crypto, me included. So yeah, it was actually quite a quite a nice bunch of people. And what was what was this meetup about? Was it just sort of the again like the oh, just a physical event for like members to hang out and chat, or or was there some special occasion? Were they all coming together to cry about crypto crashing, or what was what was going on? Yeah, networking primarily, people boozing it up, having nice uh, mac and cheese bites, including uh, yourself, obviously. The mac and cheese went down the trees. It was amazing. Mm. Yeah, it was it was it was quite a boozy affair, I would say, which was quite nice. Quite an unfiltered bunch of people, actually. I think so. It's it's quite a fun place to go, actually. And the chat is about everything, everything crypto related. You know, you well, you have- pulled some great quotes in in the piece itself, especially one about a guy floating the idea of tattooing Web three across his knuckles. It's just a perfect fit. All the letters, Web3, it's a great idea. That's yeah, I, I, I'm not sure exactly if he's going to go through with it. I told him, give me a call if you do. I, I want to come and witness this. But yeah, it's a, it was the best idea I heard there, for sure. I bet. I'm also wondering a little bit about yourself, like as somebody who, likewise, I'm not, I'm not in the crypto world at all. Were you just sort of like a fly on the wall, like just kind of eavesdropping in on people's conversations or were you just sort of like having people shout at you about the the Lindy effect and gold standards for crypto and just kind of smiling and nodding back? I was doing a lot of nodding and smiling and, and barely keeping up with some of the conversations, actually. So, yeah, I was, uh, I was pinballing around just listening into, you know, such a breath of conversation people talking about bitcoin white papers someone else talking about nfts someone talking about tokenizing carbon credits which i couldn't quite follow to be honest uh so yeah you'll 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 hear a lot of things there i'm not i'm not quite convinced that everyone really has it figured out yet but i suppose that's part of the fun yeah um and also you said that matt hancock is a member of the club or he's at least given testimonials for the website. Yeah, he is an honorary member. He has come to the club. He has spoke at one of the dinners. There's a video on the website you can check out. And sorry, real quick before you jump in, Matt Hancock being who? He is the former health uh, minister here in in the UK. And he, and was, he resigned. He resigned. He had a huge profile during COVID. He was the health minister. And he was, he was always appearing on TV telling people, not to leave their houses, not to hook up. And he resigned because he was having a relationship with one of his senior aides. So he had to resign. Mm. But he's but an yeah. honorary member. So he's doing big things since. 
He's not a member. He's quite convinced by crypto. He he has a wonderful quote he gave in an interview recently that crypto's amazing. He said that you could potentially lose all your money, but then again, you might not. So I think that's a very optimistic uh, look at crypto. Overall, though, you kind of in the piece, which like people can read about in the episode description, um, you weren't totally negative on your experiences talking to people at both, right? No, not at all. I came away with a sense of feeling that crypto is becoming a broader church, I guess. It has it has more appeal than, than perhaps I would have assumed. It is bewildering, but I did I did quite enjoy the company of the people there. So I would say it's not an entire waste of your time. It's worth checking out, maybe. Thank you, Aina. Thank you, Georgina. I do not think that I will be visiting said crypto club, but perhaps some of our listeners will be. Well, that is all that we have time for today. But if you want to hear more about what's unfolding in the world of European tech and startups, go to sifted.eu and check out our coverage. Please do not forget to take our listener survey. You can win a free month of Sifted membership. The link to the survey is in the podcast description. You can also find all of the articles mentioned in this podcast in that description. And I should also say that I would love to meet some of the people that are listening to this in the flesh, in real life, IRL. And we can do that because we're having the Sifted Summit at the beginning of October. So check out summit.sifted.eu and pick up some tickets so you can come see us. I think we're, are we going to record a podcast there, Amy? We're going to record a podcast and I've been working with our events producer, Fiona, this week. And we have some very, very exciting speakers, some of whom are not announced yet. Oh but God. let me say a few people are coming out of the woodwork who have been in hiding for a little while that I think people will want to listen to. I'm so excited. if that's enticing, go go buy your ticket. Amazing. Of course. Well, thanks so much to everyone that listened today and we look forward to seeing you next week when it's just going to be me and a to-be-decided guest. Yep, I'm off on holiday. Bye. Adios. <laughs>